One point I always like to make, the Jew, the believing Orthodox Jew, that's not, I shouldn't say believing Jew, I, I say believing Jew for those who believe in our Messiah, uh, the Lord Jesus. But the God-fearing Jew, there are about 40% of Israel, I would say, is God-fearing. About 60% is totally crass and pagan. They have disowned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They just want to be Jews and left alone. But those who are called settlers, and the media hates them, and their government hates them, these are the people that most closely match to what we believe in Scripture. The one difference, they do not see that their Messiah has come. But as I have studied Scripture and I've put in my first book, Where is the Body? I believe that those who have not seen our Messiah because of the bad press he has received, they look upon him, and I'm not running down uh, the Catholics, but what has been the stage that was set in the Middle Ages of the total iniquity of the Roman church. And unfortunately, that's what most Jews see as Christians. And there also is some bad behavior with evangelicals. But by and large, most of the people like ourselves realize God is going to do something with the Jew uh, in the end of days. And uh, we're looking forward to that. And we see the what I call the modern Orthodox. I was just talking, talking to Brother Tony. The the uh, ultra-Orthodox, or the black suit boys, uh, they're a bit, uh, <laughs> a bit suspect. Uh, like Caius and Anaphas, uh, Anaphas, Caius and Annas in the times of Jesus, mo most of those fellows would do anything for a nickel. And uh, Anyway, I, maybe that's unfortunate to say. I don't really know some of them in particular. Maybe some of them are more God-fearing than I would suspect. They don't get along with the modern Orthodox, but the modern Orthodox see the Scriptures almost identical to us, except they do not see the Messiah. And I believe when He comes, like Thomas, my Lord and my God, like Paul on the road to Damascus, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And those, uh, I believe, who are hard-pressed to follow the Lord, and they love Christians like us, or what I call Christian Zionists, what we call ourselves Christian Zionists, who believe that God has something for Israel, and He has not rejected His people, but He has a day coming when this time, those who are hungry for him will see him. I have no uh, prophetic word for the modern Orthodox and those godless ones. Uh, I don't know what the response is going to be, but it is getting so bad. I'm I, I just running a little bit past here, but talking to Brother Tony. Uh, it's pretty grim these days. Uh, on the other hand, it probably has to get that way. The rabbis say that the world is going to either get real good or real bad before Messiah comes. <laughs> it doesn't look like it's going to be the real good. 
op option because of the, the tremendous decadence of the world scene, the hatred of Israel in Europe and in even some parts of America and, um, and of course, especially in the Islamic or Arabic world. So anyway, that's just a bit of background. Uh, and um, I did tell Brother Tony, too, he'd ask, and if he doesn't know, probably most of the rest of you uh, do not have this. The, the, what you hear on the media is totally deceptive, and the big deceit is that that is not what's called Palestinian ground. First of all, Palestine is a fictitious place. The name was changed in 132 A.D. from Judea and Samaria to Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian in 132 A.D. hated the Jews so much he said, no more we're going to talk about, uh, about um, Judea and Samaria and these hated Jews. We're going to call the place Palestina. Name it after Goliath and his mates, as we would say in Australia. And that was 132 A.D. And when the Jews started to come back in the end of the 19th century, that's around 1880, very few people were uh, uh, living in the land. It was a backwater. A uh, handful of Bedouins, there were more sheep and goats, thanks to Mark Twain, who was a bit of a reprobate and hardly a model of of uh, spirituality. So uh, in that context, he's an honest observer. He says, nobody was living there. It's the most God for place. If this is the Holy Land, it's the most God forsaken place I've ever seen. And uh, they weren't there. When did they come? The Jews began to come back uh, in the 1880s. And uh, a few uh, Fedayeen followed them back to keep them from, well, a few Arabs came at that time, too, for economic reasons. The Jews drained the swamps and got rid of the malaria, and some of the Arabs started coming. And then, in those days, guess what they called the Jews? They called them Palestinians. When they got their own land back in a recognition by the United Nations in 1948, he said, we're not Palestinians, we're Jews. And Arafat picked up the name Palestinians in 1964. But the media, and let me remind you again, has a very short memory, as do most of the people that follow it. So there you are. Uh, this is the scenario. Oh, by the way, when did the most of them come? When the Turkish Empire fell in lining up with uh, with uh, the Kaiser in World War I. Most of you wouldn't remember that, not even me. Uh, but uh, I got that from history, but I remember from 48 on. But when, when uh, the Kaiser fell, so did uh, the Ottoman Empire at the same time, and the Brits took over, pardon me if there's any British here, the United Kingdom folks took over. <laughs> and uh, and uh, anyway, they... Uh, they opened the floodgates of Arab in migration. It is all in the genuine published records of the United Kingdom. And then is when the 
Palestinians rolled in. You know, these were the folks that Hanana Shrawi says we've been living there for 5,000 years. Well, that 5,000 years started in about 1917. I'll pick up my tongue-in-cheek, but uh, anyway, the, uh, that's the scenario, and they reached a crescendo. Of course, the Jews did too. They were coming back to their ancient homeland, but there were some Arab villages there, uh, Nablus uh, which, and uh, Ramallah, Nablus, and uh, Calchilia, and uh, a few of those villages. There were a lot of Arabs in Hebron, uh, but uh, that is a special jewel to the Jews, but uh, they came and settled most of those after World War I. So that is a scenario. And then this talk of occupation, 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 it is the Arabs that are occupying or wanting to occupy a lot of Jewish ground or what was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, for me, the Bible is the bottom line. But beyond the Bible, history says the other guys don't belong there anyway. But the, the irony is that, that the leftist, godless Jews, which I said are over 50%, are so, so uh, backpedaling to uh, world opinion and to what the, the um, to, to what, um, uh, the uh, Arabs are saying that they say, yeah, we want to give your land back. So they don't know their history either, and they don't know their Bible. But the, to me, the, the cream of the crop of the, the, the uh, modern Orthodox Jews who in these days are saying to people like Elsie and I and some of our colleagues over there that are working in the same level we are, as well as the Messianics, there are... 15 to 20,000 believers in Jesus in the land today. Now, that's peanuts compared to the six, uh, what, 5,000 Jews and about a million Arabs in the land. But there are those, and then there's these Orthodox Jews who are feeling more and more squeezed by their government, uh, by their government because uh, the government... Uh, these people are, are not the favorites of the government because they want to hold the land that God gave them, and the government wants them out to appease the Arabs. How many times can you be a loser? They listened to Arafat. Now they're listening to Abbas, who got his doctor's degree in Russia on saying that the Holocaust never happened. And this is the moderate guy that uh, I'm thankful for what George Bush, had, well, some of the moral stance he has, but wait a minute, what's happening in Israel, uh, George is not doing the best, and even Condoleezza Rice is doing worse. Pushing, pushing, pushing the Jews to give the land to the Arabs to which it doesn't belong, and all they, they want, and by the way, these Arabs, where'd they come from? They are Edomites from Esau and Amalek. And that is where the majority of them, though some of them have come from Egypt. Arafat was from Egypt. They're from all over the place. And this is where they are coming. Anyway, that's a bit of background. I got off onto that with your permission. <laughs> Okay, we got some unknown spooks on here.
I wonder if I can, yeah, that might come up again. Thank you. Okay, I just, that, that might be helpful. This is not what we're talking about today because I'm going to get into this donkey of prophecy very soon. But uh, that's a bit of background. I started just letting you know about the book of Where is the Body, and it's about the relationship. We don't have any here. You can get it on Amazon.com. You could get it ordered in, or it may be even in stock in any Christian bookstore. We do have this one which is a little bit different, though it shows the hatred of God toward the Judeo-Christian bedrock from the beginning in the garden. I had this last year, uh, and it's not changed. Some of you have it. Uh, I would encourage you to get it, not because of the fact that uh, we want to sell books, but because I believe there's information in there that everybody needs to know. It traces the hatred of God from the garden on through to uh, Nineveh, uh, sorry, um, Nimrod, who built Nineveh, Babylon, and Babylon caved in in 538 B.C. And, uh, well, that was wonderful. According to the prophecy in Isaiah, Babylon, Babylon has fallen, but we have new Babylons on the rise. The Greeks took over from the anti-God and I say this over and over again. I hear more and more people saying it. I don't know what you hear in some of the literature you get or what even maybe some Christian programs, some Christian programs uh, on, uh, on the um, Christian channels. But um, the... Um, I lost the thread there. Um, what they say? Yeah, the um, the Greeks. You may you hear a lot about Greek thinking, and this is what corrupts our minds today. And you know those ten thousand believers in Papua New Guinea. They didn't have to get around the Greek roadblocks in our minds, as we Westerners have, because they saw the worldview straight. And we are so much influenced by Aristotle. This is why in the third world, many times there's a tremendous amount of understanding and interest of spiritual things. But we got to get past it. This book is about that. It has two unique chapters in it, one for the ladies about Queen Bee and the beehive and so forth. It is a relook at a translation, a, re, a retranslation of one or two words which turns the, the uh, degradation of women on its head. Barbara Frieden and Gloria Steinem didn't have a clue how important the lady was in God's creation. And there's some things that are a little bit difficult to understand what Paul wrote. They become clear as a bell if there's just a little bit of an adjustment to the translation of the word deceived. So there's a chapter in here for you ladies, and one especially, if you hadn't heard, I talked about this last year, one especially, uh, chapter 12, on a totally new angle on 666 and the Antichrist. It's not Prince Charles, and it's not Henry Kissinger, it is not likely anybody else. True, in every age, there needs, there probably will be a head guy that's leading anti-God corruption, but the real antichrist is what comes in the hearts of men and women 
at the end of the age, which is now. So I recommend this. And also we have out here Showdown of the Gods, which leads up to this one. We've got a little bit about in this one. This was published exactly on somebody whose birthday was that. Somebody told me at the table that the, the, their son's birthday was on 9-11. This was published on 9-11. I had two quips in it about the World Trade Center before it happened. And the very day it went to press is when the planes were flying. And I called up from Australia to the publisher in Mobile, Alabama, with the last two typos I found. And I want to get it in, get the, 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 type, uh, the uh, print changed before I went to press. And she w it was 2 o'clock in the morning in Australia. It was 10 o'clock. You had to wait till you guys wake up. And she was not about to talk about typos. She said, this plane went here and this plane went there. I didn't even know the thing had two towers. I didn't know what it looked like. I knew what it did. And then she said, Pentagon, and I woke up, and she said, we're under attack. And there was a long pause, and I didn't know what to say. She says, are you surprised? I says, well, no, you read the book. I maintain today that the sixth trumpet, the sixth trumpet was blown on 9-11. And uh, 2001. And what is the sixth trumpet? An army of 200 million appeared. That's a good introduction for the donkey right now. An army of 200 million appeared. John says, I saw their number. And I say, this is the Islamic terrorist campaign. But let's go to some new things. I mentioned that last year. That's just a bit of catch-up. Uh, let's go the donkey of uh, prophecy. If I know how to run this thing, that's not happening. Um, shouldn't it track down from... Hmm. See where we're going. Okay. Where did all this start? Genesis 16, 7 to 12. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring to the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Now, this assumes some Bible background, some knowledge of Bible background, and uh, this was after, uh, well, well, it'll tell us here. And he said, Hagar, that's the angel. Servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She answered. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will, catch this, too numerous to count. Ishmael, though he is not alone, he is tied up with his nephew Esau and this is the father of the Arabs who are predominantly, but not exclusively, because there are Arab Christians, but predominantly the father of the Islamic race. Okay? Now it's working by going down here. Uh, Continuing, the angel of the Lord also said to her, You're now with child, you will have a son, you shall name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard of your mystery. Misery, now look, listen to this one. 
He will be a wild donkey of a man. That's prophecy. That's prophecy. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So what else is new? We are there today. Nothing has changed in several thousand years. Does God make them that way? No. Esau picked his own road as well as so did Ishmael. And this is a prophecy God knew. Let's go on. There's quite a bit here at first that I'm just going to read to set the stage for what we are seeing in both Canada and the United States as well as the United Kingdom and the world today. Genesis 17, 18 to 21, Abraham said to God, Oh, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said to Abraham, yes, but your wife Sarah, by now her name was changed from Sarai to Sarah, will bear you a son and you'll call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you, Abraham. I will surely bless him, and I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I'm going to make him into a great nation. Is this what Abraham asked for? <laughs> I suppose that uh, things could have gone differently as far as where we're at today, but God promised blessing to his son Ishmael as well. As Isaac, but the closing of this is, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. So there we are. That's the background of the two boys. Uh, and uh, we go on. We have more of man's ideas and God's promises because Abraham wasn't always in sync with the Almighty child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking, and, and uh, he was uh, mocking Isaac, uh, the little boy that was there. She said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman, woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. So we get some family things here. But God tells it like it is. This is our Bible. And uh, this is what I stand on. And uh, I believe this first and the politicians, well, maybe ninth. <laughs> and a few things in between. 21, Genesis 21, 8 to 13, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it's through Isaac that your offspring is going to be rescued. And this is through how the Lord Jesus came, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And this was the road to redemption and not through Abraham's firstborn to the, the, the Egyptian handmaid, not through Ishmael. And he was sent off to the south and to the east. How many of you know that Abraham had quite a few more children 
after Sarah died. He married Keturah, and he had quite a few more children, but he sent them all to the east to send his promised son to the land of Canaan, Canaan, and uh, to the city where God chose to put his name, which just happened to be Jerusalem. There's about 20 references to that reference in the book of Deuteronomy. So uh, anyway, uh, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Don't be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also because he is your offspring. And then uh, in Genesis God lists those 12 sons of uh, Genesis 25, 13, lists those 12 sons of Ishmael, and he continue, continues Ishmael's summary in the next, verses that follow, 16b to 18. And these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers. That's what I didn't read. It's just a list of names. According to their settlements and their camps, altogether Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last, and he, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt. And, of course, this is f further south and east of the, of the uh, land of promise. Uh, the area from Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, as you go toward Asher. And listen to this. And they lived in hostility toward all their brothers, the 12 tribes of Ishmael. And I like when things are repeated over and over again, and I don't like when somebody uh, with end-time prophecy particularly predicts, picks up one verse and makes a whole theory out of it, and I, I say that anything that was taught about end-time prophecy before 20 to 30 years ago is quite out of date needs to be updated on the basis of what is going on in the land of Israel right now. So there they lived in hostility toward their brothers. This is repeated through the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, I like to call it. Okay, let's go on. Um, the donkey revisited. I had a lovely young lady in Cairns who put this together for us because I don't know anything about putting... PowerPoints together, but she put that little picture of the donkey on there just to remind us where we're going. So we're going to get off in another little angle here, so I think you're all brilliant enough to follow this. We got the background of Ishmael and the donkey, the wild donkey of, of prophecy, but now in Exodus, the Lord is, this is another tack. The Lord says to Moses, we're no longer with Abraham, the Lord says to Moses, giving him the law, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belong to me, whether man or animal. And why? Exodus 13, 11 to 12. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give to the Lord the firstborn offering of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Okay, this was for uh, redemption purposes to redeem the firstborn. Okay, that's the law, and uh, nobody's saved by that, but this is the culture of the Hebrew peoples 
as they came through the wilderness. And, you know, people criticize and say how legalistic Moses is. Well, some people have made it that. But the thing is, this is their culture. As Papua New Guinea has a culture, and we gave them the gospel in that culture, and the the Jew, some most most of the Jews have yet to see things coming through in their culture. It does not uh, get rid of the law. Jesus said, "Not one jot or tittle will pass away until everything's fulfilled." We are not saved by the law, but that does not mean that there are not some good things in the teaching for health and strength and for, as it says several times in Deuteronomy, a good life and a long life, nothing about salvation. I think the Christian church often, from Constantine on, is about ten times more legalistic than Moses ever was. Let that be as it is. Uh, the symbolism after the Lord brings you... Oh, no, I, I read that. All the firstborn males belong to me. So this was an edict to the children of Israel in the wilderness. The reason for this, Exodus 13, 14 to 16, in the days to come when your son asks you, what are you doing this for? My translation, say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, slavery. when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the animal kill, let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. You don't kill the boys as they did the child sacrifice with the heathens, with Moloch. You don't kill the, the firstborn son, but he is redeemed with the temple shekels. There's a certain uh, designate, des I think it's five temple shekels for every firstborn son. So... Um, you go to the temple, and, uh, or there it was the tabernacle in the wilderness, and uh, pay your little tax on the young fella. And so uh, uh, I don't know why, but that's what God said, and that's okay for me. Uh, redeem each of my firstborn sons, but sacrifice the animals. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with his mighty hand. That is what the feasts of Israel are all about, not to get to heaven, not to make points with the Almighty, but they are a learning technique. And there are many people who like to uh, go through the Passover because it reflects the Messiah that's coming. And the Jews don't see it. But there's a lot of Christians that we know, and Elsie and I do it. I, I hold a Passover meeting uh, the way they did it. Not to get to heaven, not to have points, but to get the feeling of what is happening and how the Jews learned, and it is a learning technique for the children, and that's what it is all about. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, it, to remind your children what's going on. Okay, let's go the next one. Here's a surprise package. Redeem with the lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. And then going on to redeem your sons. And so... That's an interesting one. How in the world did the unclean donkey get into that kosher list of verse 13? You follow me? The, the list was sheep and cows and goats and all your animals. That co You know what kosher is? You know, I saw some heads nodding. Kosher, you know, the Jews can eat some things and not others. 
I, I know I know one believing messianic, he believes in Jesus, messianic brother, he says, I can't find anywhere in the Bible that a, a Gentile won't go to heaven if he eats pork. In fact, he might get there a little quicker. Anyway, it's, it's dietary. It, it, it's dietary. But how did this donkey get in here? Because there's strike two on the donkey. Uh, because what, can you, what could you eat and what couldn't you eat? You can't eat it if it doesn't have a split hoof. And you can't eat it if it doesn't chew the cud like a cow or other ruminants. And the donkey has got strike two on him. It doesn't have a split hoof, and it doesn't chew the cud. The camel has a, has a uh, doesn't have a split hoof, but the camel chews its cud like a cow. But he's out because he doesn't have both of them. And what else? the pig, pig's got the split hoof, but it doesn't chew the cud. Therefore, it's dirty and it's unclean. So these are, you know, some considerations of dietary laws and so forth. But how did the donkey get in there? Who's both? He, he's totally out of it on on both things. And so uh, the rabbis, you get three rabbis and you get four opinions, but they have shared some good light on what happened and will uh, and what pertains to what's going on today. Anyway, why is the donkey? Why is the donkey is uh, I just want to knock off something here. Uh, it says pick up a hand up handout. There are no handouts. I'm just going to tell you what, what's on here just a bit, and then we're going to go on. How are we doing on time? Um, um, yeah, they tried to figure out why the donkey was included in the list. Well, they said that when the Jews left Egypt that some of them said that they were just as bad or worse than the Egyptians in immorality. And they weren't too sharp in what we would say is a really holy situation. God took them out, but they weren't very uh, spiritual-looking people. And as I said, it was said that couldn't tell the difference between them and the pagan Egyptians. Actually, that's what's going on in the government of Israel today, as I told Brother Tony. The wor they have the worst government now than they have since Ahab. It is totally corrupt. And about one-third, one-third of the, the members of the Knesset, that's uh, parliament sort of thing, Senate representative, about one-third have had some sort of a financial or political scandal uh, uh, vote rigging, uh, buying votes, all, all this, all this kind of corruption. About one third of the Knesset has been cited, not convicted, because they got judges that let them off faster than they get on. The whole thing is rotten, from prophet to priest to to uh, the uh, the government, and so uh, such as it was in Egypt. What did God take him out of there for? Well, the donkey maybe is an example of this. 
And they said, well, he looks pretty bad on the outside or on the physical things, but uh, inside, like the Jewish people, there's something good to redeem. And we, or, or there, yeah, there's something good there to bring out for redemption. Well, we're all in the same boat here. Where did we come from? And there was something good, no matter how bad we looked on the outside, there was something good worthy of redemption. Another mention here, the word for donkey, chamur, is the same root as the word for material. That is the mundane, the materialistic material, chomer and chamur, very similar. And so, therefore, the donkey was regarded as pretty, pretty uh, crass and uh, and um, materialistic, that sort of thing. So there we are. Uh, and uh, he says here that when this rabbi, I got a paper that he impurity the Jewish people was only on the surface, hiding a great inner holiness. It was a superficial blemish, and uh, the fact that there was capacity for God to redeem them. You only have to read the book of Judges. You gave them about 40 years and they were back into the pit. And we look for a spirituality with the king of the Jews and the atonement that we have through him for a lifelong and an eternal cleansing. But uh, in the past there was this up and down thing. Okay. Um, so much for that. Maybe it was because the donkey was representative of backsliding and uh, unworthy people until God uh, provided for them. Now, let's see. Let's go on. Some donkeys are more clever than others. How, have you, how many of you know that quote from Animal Farm? All men are created equal, but some are more equal than others, which is a tongue-in-cheek comment for favoritism. But that's not what we have here. We've got Balaam's donkey. I invite you to read that in Numbers 21 to 40, 22, Numbers 22, 21 to 41. And uh, we're not going to get into that, except I think most of you know the story of Balaam's donkey. Uh, Balak wanted this prophet, the, the, it's, it's very, very uh, confusing in a way if we see things in black and white. But this guy, this Balaam, was, he got his directions from God. He talked to the Almighty. He got answers. He said, shall I go? Here we go again. I don't know how to keep these things from going down. There we go. Uh, uh, he got instructions from the Almighty, don't curse Israel, don't go down there. Then he asked again, so finally God let him go. He says, okay, you go. In, in a dream, he says, but only say what I tell you to say. So uh, he gets on his donkey, and uh, the donkey's going through a narrow vineyard, and uh, he uh, balks along the way, and... Uh, how did that go? Read it. it he, he's got trouble all the way. Finally, the donkey got to a very narrow place, 
and he couldn't, he just laid down on Balaam's foot, which didn't give him any great joy, and he beat the donkey, and the donkey talked to him. Remember that? Remember that story? He said, what are you doing to me? I've been a faithful donkey for you all my life, and you're beating me. And then Balaam, uh, Balaam looked up. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. So that donkey had a bit more usefulness maybe than, uh, than some donkeys. Anyway, I thought I'd just throw this in because I, I like to go through scriptures to get the whole gamut of refu- re- references on, on uh, one particular thing. So you get the whole picture. Balaam's donkey's in there, which was a fairly useful creature and a bit sharper than, than Balaam. Okay. But God has a plan, and he knows his man, and he knows his donkey. Malachi, we're going more. Now, this is not about uh, Ishmael, but it's about nephew Esau, who were, they were out of the same cookie cutter, and they had the same temperament. But I have loved you, says the Lord, speaking to Israel. But you ask, how have, I, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau have I hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. And uh, a lot of people don't like this. This is not politically correct. God has his reasons for uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God has a plan on one hand, and also he knows everything from start to finish about us and about Esau. But let's go on. We're going to go through here. And uh, this has enough significance in the scriptures. Just as I have written, Jacob have I loved in Roman. This is Romans nine. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. When what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'm going to have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And again in Romans, just a little bit down the line, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So we've got some prophecies about both of those uh, both, both the offspring of Ishmael, the offspring of Esau, that they were related, and uh, but here's one. Zechariah nine nine, and the, ironically, what I was reading a little bit ago about this handout from the rabbis, which they were trying to figure out why the donkey was included. They even had this verse in, and we see this as a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Now that was a prophecy of you know what? The Lord Jesus. And they say when Messiah comes and they don't realize he's come, they say when he comes, if the world's real good, he'll be coming in very fancy way. If the world's real bad, he'll be coming on a donkey. So they expect him to come on a donkey. He's come on a donkey, but they haven't seen it. But 2 Corinthians 3 says they got a blinder over their eyes, and I, I know a very godly, not a believer in Jesus, a very godly Jewish man down, down by the, um, near the Temple Mount, 
And he says, well, he knows the New Testament. He says, says that he put a blindfold on her eyes. He says he's going to have to take it off. And uh, so we're waiting for that. But he's one. He's a very godly man. And I know, I know he's going to see the real Jesus when he comes and not the one that is in his mind created by the Roman system that they just haven't gotten out of their minds. So anyway, let's keep going here. I want to get, rid, uh, get finished with this. I've got a lot of story, a lot of little stories to tell you about what's going on. But he has an option for a wild donkey as well. This just follows right on from Zechariah 9.9, John 12, 12 to 15. The next day a great crowd that had come for the, for, from the, come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches. You know the story. Went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young, do a young donkey. He sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That donkey must have been from wild donkey stock at one time. Which gives us a little clue here that Jesus, Jesus can tame wild donkeys. We work with Jews to a certain extent. Uh, and uh, there are those who work with the Islamic nations. In both cases, you don't see the progress very fast. They say there are Islamic peoples coming to the Lord in certain countries. But this gives us a little clue, a little clue that the wild donkey is not the end of everything. And uh, there's hope. This is also in Matthew 21 and Luke 19. But I, we still have a lot more. Because that's scripture, that's background. Now we come, are we asleep? Now we come to the world we live in. And I have got a bunch of little observations here that uh, are a little bit scary because not all wild donkeys are tamed. They weren't tamed on 9-11, and they weren't tamed now. Not all, not all donkeys were tamed, where the Lord rode on their backs down the Mount of Olives. Last year, we were having meetings in southern Illinois. A lady said, I'll get meetings for you, and she lined them up. And we were staying in a hotel there at this little town in southern Illinois. And I said to her, where is a restaurant? She says, there's one right across the street from your hotel. But it's Islamic. Hmm. Got a McDonald's? <laughs> I'm not a fan of McDonald's, that's for sure. But uh, no, I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be judgmental either. Who knows what they were, or what they represented. But there is one thing that is frightening. Our lead government leaders say, well, 
all these people, y'all, it's only a fringe. It's only a fringe that are violent, and all the rest are moderates. But there is a strange silence of the moderates when it comes to condemning their brethren. One or two or three, Bridget, Gabrielle, a Lebanese Christian lady. And um, there's another one from, uh, another uh, one from, but they have to get out of there or get killed from where they're, and they write and they publish and they speak from other places. There is Walid Shubat, who was a terrorist from Bethlehem, and he was beautifully transformed into a, a, a believer in Jesus and a lover of the Jews. And he's Palestinian. And there is uh, Nani Darwish is another Palestinian lady who is an outspoken critic of what her people are doing, but they're not many. They're not many. Anyway, in Illinois, we went the next day, we went down the road to our meeting to the west toward St. Louis. And uh, our host, Deborah, said, oh, there's another restaurant that's Islamic. And then a couple days later, we were going down 17 miles to the east. Oh, here's another restaurant that's Islamic. Well, as I travel all over the United States in all the, the hospitality industries, the hotels, the uh, auto mechanic shops, and uh, taxi drivers in some cities, the only taxi drivers you get are Islamists. Are they terrorists? You don't know. But you do know that they're getting, collecting information or they know information and that there is a very, very tight network all across the United States and Canada. Fuel stations and uh, all public service. And here's a grief-stricken grief mother in the north of Illinois where we were at at a Messianic meeting. She brings out a little picture brings out a little picture, crying. And she said, this is my son. He was in jail for drugs. She's a black lady in jail for drugs. And they got him in there and turned him into a Muslim. And that's the jails in the United States where all these converts are coming from. And, and uh, the black Folks, uh, and, and from 46 years off and on in Papua New Guinea, I'm kind of black inside. But the black folks in America are either very pro-Israel or they're very pro-Ishmael. I haven't found anything else. They're either strong Christians or they're Muslims. And the jails are the, uh, the universities for them to teach Islam. And this is not people going into the jails. It's from prisoner to prisoner, teaching them to hate the West, to hate the Jew, and to become, an, uh, to become a Muslim. And this lady was weeping. and says, will you pray for my son? They got him. So let's go on. Government. How many of you know who Keith Ellison is? 
Anybody here know who Keith Ellison is? There we go. He's congressman from, no, well, you're close, Minnesota. He was elected uh, into the House from Minnesota. Why do I have to come from Australia to know who your, con <laughs> who your, <laughs> who your Congress people are? Uh, he was the guy, and he was, not, he was not born Islamic. He was a convert. He's white. Keith Ellison was the first one to lay his hand on the Quran for the swearing-in to the United States government. And they let him get away with it. And he took a copy of some letter of Thomas Jefferson, which was anti Jefferson was reading the Quran to just catch up on these guys that they were having, having problems with in those days, the Islamists. But he twisted that around. He said, Thomas Jefferson ha had a Quran, and I'd like to use his Bible, his Quran, to swear my oath to come into the government. Totally twisted. Okay. Uh, what's Barack Obama's middle name? It's right there on the screen. How many of you knew that? Hussein. Okay, I want to tell you about him. Now, listen, if I, I'm, how many people got to go exactly at 3 o'clock, which is one minute? Uh, if you have to go, don't mind, but I, I have a few more stories here. But to facilitate this, I have a website. And on my website, I think it's in probably March or February, March, I have about three that pertain to Islamic things, and one is about Barack Hussein Obama. He was born to a militant Kenyan, a Muslim. His, it was his father. His mother was a white atheist from Hawaii. She divorced the guy and married another guy just like him, and his early training i got to tell you this. His early training, uh, well, he had a couple of years in the Wabiist. You know what Wabi is? These are the Wabiism. These are the guys that flew into the Twin Towers. This is the Al-Qaeda crowd, a Wabiist-oriented school. It was, he was when he was little, but they get kids when they're little. But who knows what happened then. But anyway, he said, I got nothing to do with that. Now I'm a Christian. And he joined the Church of Christ in Chicago. But that's not the Church of Christ that we all know down on the corner. Because there's Churches of Christ and there's Churches of Christ. The Church of Christ, uh, basically their doctrine is quite like the Baptists, except for the fact that if you make a decision, they'll baptize you the same day. But this is kind of the theology. But that's not the Church of Christ that he got into. And the pastor says, I worry about him because he's a little bit um, too much. With, oh, he is very pro-Palestinian. And also, some genuine information, and it's on my website if you want to look it up. Some, uh, there's about three of them. 
Uh, the trouble is, you, I'm, I'm a little bit naughty and never tell what, what I'm going to talk about from uh, the title. But I think it's in February or March. There's one I never thought we'd see the day. Yeah, that's about this, that's about this uh, Keith Ellison guy. I, <laughs> I hope I don't offend anybody here, but if I do, I'll apologize right now and then tell you anyway. <laughs> I said I never thought I'd see the day when there was a more scary situation than having another Clinton in the White House. And uh, then I, I didn't come clear there because I don't always come clear with what I write. You guys got to fill in the blanks. And, uh, and uh, anyway, but then the next two after that are about Obama and his pastor, who said, I'm worried about him, and some of his background. He was in contact before he was a senator with none other than Louis Farrakhan. How many of you don't know who Louis, Fer Louis Farrakhan is? He's the black militant nation of Islam, uh, he, he is one of the violent ones, uh, violently against uh, the principles of America, Louis Farrakhan. He died not very long ago. He's been around for a while. And uh, anyway, he hobnobbed with him for a little while. And he's the essence of militancy of American Muslims. And then also he had, went over and had a little visit with Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. That is Barack Hussein Obama. And don't forget his middle name. And finally, that particular church that he joined, which went by the name of Church of Christ, which would make you think it's under another umbrella, there are those churches, the, what do you call them, the hierarchy churches. There is Catholic, and this has nothing to do with Catholic in the United States or Catholic in, or, or Lutheran or Anglican or Greek Orthodox, but those in Jerusalem are all, they all have localized Palestinian clergy like we have Papua New Guinean leaders over there. All of these guys have local in, in Jerusalem. They go around in black suits. That's what the Jews think Christians are. And they put out a manifesto about a year ago that said, Christian Zionists, that's me. That means that I believe that Zion is coming through when the king of the Jews returns. And I, I, uh, I'm a, a pro-Zionist means that I am for the establishment of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus in Israel and so forth. So that's what we're called, Christian Zionists. They said, Christian Zionists, this manifesto, and this church was in on it along with the Catholics, the Anglicans, the even some Lutherans. Now, Lutherans can be very evangelical in other parts, but where they have Palestinian clergy, they, they uh, <laughs> uh, what's first? They, they hate Israel first, and anything else that follows may or may not be Christian. And that just is localized there. That group that Obama belongs to was a part of this manifesto that Christian Zionists are from the devil. They don't know Scripture. They don't know how that the Jews are cursed forever, and they are following Satan. So there you go. Uh, you know a little bit more about 
Obama. Okay, let, let's go on. Now, uh-oh. Why did they do two there? Uh, there are some blue slips, and even if you go out early, like this brother here, <laughs> uh, pick up a little blue slip there if you have a computer with a website on Islamburg, New York. Now, some of you have seen this. Some of you have seen this on my website. But this Islamburg, New York, now you got a few pictures. This guy that you see snuck into there, or I don't know how he got in there because they are heavily guarded at the gate. And it is a paramilitary camp. Uh, Bob is gone, but uh, some of you from, Roche uh, from uh, not Rochester, excuse me, take note. <laughs> this place is not far from you guys. Uh, a paramilitary camp for training. Most of these guys turned Muslim in the jails. And uh, uh, you can get a little blue slip and read this online that saved me the time here. There are 12 paramilitary camps like this. And the guy had some pictures on, no, he doesn't have pictures. But on the inside, there are these boards to climb over for military training, ropes to climb up. The people live around there here firing their target practice all the time. The government can do nothing because they haven't broken the law. We need some new laws. Got the same thing in Australia. Not, not these things, but, but uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But the, this Islamburg, New York, you can see that guy with the sign. And it said in the article that people don't even kind of look around when they go past because they don't want to be... Uh, sort of suspected of snooping in there. So it's a pretty creepy place. And uh, that little white picture in the middle is their general store. And uh, where you see the cars there, that's, uh, I forget what they called that. I think that's uh, Islam Street or something like that. And it is a paramilitary camp. Now that's it's bad enough that there's one near you folks in Syracuse. <laughs> But there are 12 of them. And if you live here in Virginia, the nearest one is Falls Creek, Virginia. There's 12 of these in the United States. And one, just to not let you Canadians feel left out, one in Canada. Let's go on. Sorry? Where? You want to visit them? No. <laughs> I don't know. It might be on that article. Uh, it might be on the article that I give you. I have no idea where that one is. I have a map of the United States. Can you see the green dots? Uh, there's one up there in New York. Down there in Maryland, it looks to be one. Falls Creek, you see one. And one down below there. Looks like we're honored with two of them in Virginia. Unless I'm onto the wrong things. No, these uh, York. In uh, um, South Carolina, one in uh, Georgia, one across the way there in uh, in um, Alabama, and uh, one Texas, one in Colorado, one in Colorado, California, and or was there two there and one up there in Washington State. Now, I believe the green, yeah, the green says it's compounds. Then these other things, 
But this is on that article. Let's go. I don't want to keep you here too much longer. Um, land claims. Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Hab. Dar is land or lands or the turf or the grounds of Islam and Harb is war. And, is, and Islam divides up the world into these two camps. Either it is the lands of, uh, lands of, uh, of Islam or the lands of war, and this is the conquest. And anybody that wants to, well, no, they have to read Arabic, can read these things on their websites, on the Islamic websites. Uh, and uh, again, you might say, well, it's only 10%. 10% of the communists brought Russia, the Soviet Union, into communism. 90% were either apathetic or didn't want it. Nazis, 10% of the Nazis were Nazis in Nazi Germany, and they swayed the tide for Nazi Germany to take over. What is it? The, uh, how does the saying go? Um, evil thrives when good men do nothing. But at the same time, I'm not here to advocate what we need to do or what uh, we'll get to the end of this. But the fact is, it is not very difficult for an overthrow of a legitimate government with only 10% of the nation behind you. Okay, that, uh, and what happened to Herzog? Uh, I, I got a, a section in this book about Islam in former Yugoslavia, Herzegovina. And in the end of the day, NATO helped the Muslims as they are trying to help the Palestinians and the terrorists right now, Hamas is too much, so they're trying to strengthen the guy who said there was no Holocaust. They have not learned, but the problem is you can't tell the devil to be good and they have their own agenda. We must realize that things are shaping up not according to our doctrines and our theology, but for the end of days. He's the only answer. He's the only answer. Okay. Um, anyway, um, there's a book coming out. I see a note here. Uh, I got this from the, a book published, The Green Horse, which is written by a friend of mine. That's coming out, and that's got the whole nine yards on Islam. Let's go on. I want to finish quickly. A couple here from Australia. Um, the two Dannys, two pastors that had saying some of the stuff that may be more severe, I don't know, but what I just told you. And a convert to Islam came in there with a tape recorder. And he took the two guys to court because they were inciting Islam. It was a law against incitement. And the judge, who was like some of the rest of these guys that are so far left, they're irredeemable, not even like the donkey, 
But the judge said it has no matter whether these guys are telling the truth or not. What matters is Islam was offended. And they were telling what's in the Quran. They said, you guys got no right to go into the Quran. That's our book. But what is in the Quran is that they're going to kill us all. But these guys were under a fine of two, between $200,000 and $300,000. But finally, they, they appealed it. They won that, and they're still not over. But this is just a, a, a millstone hanging around their neck as far as further work than they can do because they were cited for offending Muslims. And, of course, you know how they went berserk about those cartoons about, about Muhammad. They went crazy. And we're dealing with something else here. And these people have learned how to milk the democratic cow, which, on one hand, we all are thankful for democracy. But on the other hand, we might be better check our status because democracy isn't God. Democracy is helpful. We like it, we vote for it, but it's not God. And democracy in Gaza elected a 70% Hamas majority whose program it was to drive all the Jews out of the Middle East. We won't kill you if you get out of here fast enough. And that's Hamas. Ironically, it might not be quite as severe, but this is the mentality of the 22 Arab nations around there, uh, Islamic nations, I should say, because there's a difference. Anyway, there's one more, uh, one more, there's a sheikh teaching ki kids, and he had a meeting with a bunch of kids in Sydney about the virtues of suicide bombing. The government went berserk, but the Attorney General, Philip Ruddick, said, Philip Ruddick said, we can't do anything about it because we don't. Free speech, he can say what he wants to, and, uh, well, it's time they got some new laws. And he taught a bunch of Sydney kids about the virtues of merits of suicide bombing. Peter Costello, our treasurer over there, he's a good guy. I think he's a Christian. He says, if those guys don't, if you people don't like the government here, go back to where you came from. That sounds beautiful. Except nobody's listening because the law is on their side. Nobody's going to, and, and, and there's no difference here in America. Maybe it's even worse. Poor Canada. And we need to wake up. Not for rebellion. Let's go to the next one. Because I think we're just about finished here. You've been very patient. Every once in a while, this thing gets stuck, and I have to. Where uh, next one? Isaiah, a bit more prophecy. In summary, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be a third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Well, that's interesting. And I know a lot of times I've had friends point to this verse, and they're working with the Muslims. However, I like to see... 
teaching like this in a sequence, and this is the only one like it that speaks of revival in the end of days. Uh, so, the most important thing is if you're now a bit confused on how to tell wild donkeys from tame ones, you are not alone. This is exactly the final emphasis. Our Lord gave us his enduring advice on such matters. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I'm not calling for, what should I say, protests and marches and whatever. As I said before, something that really drives home with me, it's a waste of time to tell the devil to be good. There is a tidal wave of humanism, political correctness, and all that sort of rubbish sweeping over us. We've got a different kingdom. But we must know what's going on. That we're not deceived like the rest of the sheep. And don't let political correctness, which, by the way, is a replacement of the Bible for the of evolving new world order, don't let political correctness influence your interpretations of serpents and doves. We've got to know where we're at, and we've got to know uh, just exactly the problems that could occur. It's well to be forewarned. It's well to be wise to what is happening, to have our eyes open and not be influenced by the world system and especially by the media. Well, that's the voice of the world system. Best that we know what is happening and what these guys are doing. We don't have to make judgments except for the steps that we take. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Amen. Now, I didn't blow the shofar before. It's okay. I'll do it now and close in prayer. Father, with that, we declare your authority over this congregation, over this camp, over this fellowship. Lord, over the circumstances out there, you are Lord. And Father, we thank you that you are coming back. But Lord, may we not be naive.
like the rest of the sheep, the rest of the lemmings that go over the cliff. Father, that we can have our eyes open, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Father, we pray that we could be filled with the Spirit of the living God, to hear a voice behind us say, this is the way, walk in it. We thank you, Father, that most of us have arisen. Lord, breathe upon us that we can shine. And Father, in the, uh, the symbolism of this shofar, Lord, the voice of the shofar, which is your voice, May we, have, may we walk under your authority in a godless world until you come. And may we continue our assignment that you've given to each of us individually. We have different areas of service. Lord God, breathe upon us till we meet you face to face. Thank you, Father, for being with us this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen.